The Tenth Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design created to help connect Black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. So if you're a Black designer and you're looking for a new job, go to thetenthcollective.com to sign up for free or check out the link in the show notes. Speaking of jobs, Revision Path's job board is part of the Tenth Collective, as you can go there to browse job listings, post your own job listings, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Old Dominion University is looking for the following positions, all in Norfolk, Virginia. An assistant professor in design, tenure track. A lecturer in game development and game programming. And an assistant professor of photography, also tenure track. For more information on these listings, including DEI statements, qualifications, salary, and more, visit revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. We're here to help you find your next big opportunity today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. We're helping raise money for Selma Tornado Relief at the United Way of Central Alabama. Last month, a tornado ripped through my hometown of Selma, Alabama, and it's going to take a real community effort to get things back to normal. If you've seen any of the footage or any of the pictures, you know it looks like a war zone there. So if you're in a position to help, then text the word SELMA to 62644 and donate any amount that you can. Also, if you send me proof of your donation, I will match it 100% up to the first $1,000 donated. Again, text SELMA to 62644. I'll also put this information in the show notes. Thanks to all of those who have already donated. Now let's talk about one of our sponsors, Hover. Do you have something new that you want to launch this year, like an art project or a podcast or your own website? Whatever it is that you're passionate about and you want to build it online, Hover's got your back. Everything online begins with a domain name, and Hover makes the process of choosing and using your domain name a piece of cake. If you get stuck, they have a best-in-class customer support team that can help you out every step of the way. Plus, there's free Who Is Privacy, meaning you can keep your identity safe from hackers or any other bad folks out there. Get started today with Hover by going to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Also, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, we now have a new hotline. So if there's something from a particular episode that really stuck with you, or if there's an interview or a guest that you really love, you can let us know directly. You can leave us a voicemail message at 626-603-0310. 
you might just hear your message on a future episode. Again, that number is 626-603-0310. We'll put it in the show notes as well. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with the one and only Kirk Visola. Kirk is a creative director in Santa Cruz, California, and he's the founder of Mind the Font, a full-service branding and packaging design agency. He's also a podcaster, and you can check him out as the co-host of the podcast, Kirk and Kurtz. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. All right, what's up? How you doing, Maurice? Uh, thanks for having me on, man. I'm Kirk Faisola. I'm the founder and creative director of Mind the Font. It's a full-service branding and packaging design agency. We try to focus on things in the food and beverage space, mainly CPG, which is consumer product goods. And as much as it sounds like I'm reading this, I am not. That was off the top of the dome. Nice. <laughs> How has uh, 2023 been going so far? I know you're in, in California, so y'all have been getting hammered by the rain. Yeah, you know, it's not too bad. For the most part, I've been fortunate enough. I'm in Santa Cruz, which is close to Aptos and Capitola, which were both hit pretty heavily in, on their downtowns and also Soquel and on the docks and then next to the ocean. We lost part of our road here in West Cliff in Santa Cruz, so it's been raining pretty heavily. But today it let up, and it's a beautiful day. That's the weather forecast for 2023. As far as business and just livelihood, I'm happy to be upright, pushing 50 in my late 40s, and I'm a black male in this country, and I'm still alive. So that has to count for something. So I'm happy about that. I heard that. Amen to that. <laughs> Let's talk about your... Your branding agency, Mind the Font. Well, your your branding and packaging design agency, Mind the Font. Tell me more about that. This, that's a really good, really, really good question, which is what people always say on podcasts. Great question, because we're actually trying to think of a way to answer the question. I've been working in design for a long time. Like I, I started in, you know, 98, and I was doing all kinds of, of things. I was still going to school. I was going to take uh, design classes. And I started working freelance with my wife at the time. And then I was working freelance and I decided to go into the, the private sector or into corporate sector, however you want to call it. And so starting in 2009, I got a job at Pure Creative. And then I, if you want to read my resume when you get off here, that's fine too. But fast forward to 2014, I started working at a company called Shackley. And it was a great job for at the get-go. My boss, who's still a really good friend, she was very, I'm trying to the best way to put this, very progressive by the means in which people work because I had been freelancing for Lord knows how long. And that was all from my house. It was all via emails when FTP file transfer protocol first came out <laughs> and stuff like that. And I was, I was doing all that stuff. And then she left. No, actually, here's what happened. I got absorbed into a different, a different place and then at the company and then she left. And it just went downhill from there. It was a horrible experience. I guess I can get into that later. But what made me leave was the fact that I, I couldn't handle it anymore. I was stressed out. Half of my face would go numb going into work. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to do my own shit. So my wife and I were on vacation. And I was, I was at the point where I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And we were in the UK. And everything there when you ride on the London Underground is, please, mind the gap. It's like this repeated person over the intercom mm -hmm. saying please don't forget to remind the gap remind the gap and so my wife goes why don't you just call it mind the font and i just was floored like how did i not think of this how did i not think of it so i have to credit her 
with giving me the name for the company. And it's just doing stuff I've always done. I'm really good at what I do, but my main interest and my main focus in regards to design work is branding and packaging. That's like my forte. It's what I love. And so that's what I do at Mind the Font. And clients range from from new alcohol products to new baby food products or just food products. And also, I'm trying to think of stuff I've done, beauty products and perfumes. So we run the gamut on on all things that come in a box. And that's what Mind the Font does. I'm curious, have you found there to be any sort of big changes in designing for like consumer packaged goods over the years? Well, absolutely. There's always standards that you have to abide by. There's certain things that need to go on packaging that you need to think about. There's certain techniques that have been evolved that have evolved over the years, especially in printing. That's a big thing. Printing has evolved so much and all of the, the protocols of of companies trying to go greener and then print companies also keeping up to go greener. The actual programs that you use are advancing. I mean, especially with the big AI thing coming out, right? You know, I've even kind of dabbled with mid-journey and it's weird because people are speaking about how it's used to steal their art. Well, what I'm doing is I'm taking art I've done and using that as a prompt to see what it does. Mm. So it's like my art as a base, but then like putting in the prompt is what it does for mid-journey and add texture to this to make it look more like three-dimensional and it does it to my own artwork. So I'm thinking like maybe that's something that could possibly be an avenue for people to go. I don't think that's going to replace designers. I don't think it's going to replace artists, but I do think that it's a, a means of weeding out the bad designers and good designers. Like when there was a big real estate boom, there were tons of real estate agents and a lot of them went away, but the ones that were really good at what they did, they're still there. And so there's programs that are advancing and there's also different mediums to go about. Mm-hmm. When I first started, it was basically web and print, right? This is the late 90s. There was no real social media. Maybe Facebook started coming out and other things. And, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, there's UX designers, product designers, UI designers, web designers, and then there's print designers. <laughs> social media managers, social media content creators. Yeah. There's like this wide gamut of things that people can do now. And so it's just so, so advanced with, with all the stuff that's coming out. As, for me, it's just too much to keep up with from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. But in my own field, which is why I specified branding and packaging, it's like I feel very comfortable there. And I'm always trying to learn. I'm always talking with people. I'm always getting new ideas and figuring out new ways to handle things and, and bouncing ideas off of people to see what they think. I have a trusted group of friends were phenomenal designers that I talked to. It's always good to do that, man. And and so that's, I think I'm keeping up that way. So I'm doing all right. That's so interesting you mentioned that about mid-journey. I've been doing a lot of kind of playing around with chat GPT, which is a, another sort of AI generated tool. Mid-journey is more for visuals. I think chat GPT is more, more text-based. And it's funny, I was talking about this with, uh, with my mentor and we kind of both came to the conclusion that like these kinds of tools are, they almost feel like you're working with like a really good intern. Like they're not going to be specific enough to be an artisan or a master or an expert at it, but they can get pretty good. Like it's uh, like how you're mentioning with mid journey, how you feed your own art into it. I've been doing that with chat GPT, um, kind of feeding some, (laughs) hopefully people, hopefully listeners don't get mad at this, but I've been feeding in some past episodes and being like, generates 20 questions based off the transcript of this interview and it'll oh, put wow. the questions out i'm like 
oh, this is pretty good. I mean, they're not perfect, but it's a good jumping off point for me to say, okay, I can take this out. I could change the words here. I could do that. I've even, not for this interview, just to be clear, but I did do it for one interview. I was like, I had chat GPT. I fed them this person's bio and said, generate 20 questions as if we were doing an in-depth one-hour podcast interview. And I used some of them. Some of them were good. Some of them were not. But some of them I was like, okay, this is promising. It's promising. If you had a breakfast cereal that you would like to eat, what would it be? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And like with ChatGPT, it's so interesting because like you can even tell it like certain books, like books that I haven't necessarily read, but I could say, you know, give me a 10 point summary of this book by this person. And it's like the best kind of cliff notes in a way. I know that there are educators that are like, Okay. Oh, we got to ban this shit. We can't have this in the classroom <laughs> because some of this stuff is is too. I don't even want to say it's necessarily too good, but it's it'll get you there. It's not the best, but it'll get you there. It's good enough. Right. Here's the thing with that: twofold. One, there are actually programs where you can put in someone's work or a written book. From what I'm reading, like their actual essay or what they've whatever they've written, you could put it into the internet somewhere and and decipher if it was written by them. Mm-hmm. Or if it was generated by AI, mm-hmm. there's some type of thing that does that. And two, even just because it's written by someone doesn't necessarily educate them or make them a better writer. My biggest fear and problem is, is that all AI is doing is taking stuff we've already done and rehashing it. Yeah. And right now the focus is on speed. The focus is on, oh, look how quickly I can do this. Look at like, what if people just stopped making art? What would they be able to choose from? I mean, you would have to go back and it's just going to repeat the same thing. And the next thing you know that everything is going to start looking the same. And I noticed that when I put in a prompt in AI, it gives, it gives you four messages in, or four in, images in mid-journey. And the images, they usually have the same colors when you do it. Mm-hmm. And the type isn't right, which is something that's going to work for, I'm sure. But it's always this, like relatively the same. And I'm thinking to myself, man, how how can you just sit there and like, do something up real quick and then use that as your work. Now I can see that what you're saying as a jumping off point or starting point, it's great for that. Like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of doing that shape or, oh, I wouldn't have thought of using that pattern or color. Let me build off of that. But to just use it as your work, it's like, I don't know, man, I can't fuck with it. But And the other thing too is there's been tons of programs that have come out that were supposed to quote unquote destroy the art industry and make art more rare yeah. for people to get into. Like, Canva. Canva came out and <laughs> you can do your own design work and people it hasn't gotten rid of designers. Motion pictures, telephones, the car, everything else is like coming out. You know, the only thing I can really say that really hurt people was Netflix. Mm. Right? Like Blockbuster got destroyed. When there's some type of disruption in a field, it's good because it forces people to regress. But with the progression, you don't want to regress in regards to art and creating art or thought processes. And I think that's so critical for any type of field is to have a thought process, is to have some type of critical thinking in regards to what you're doing. Yeah. I think that's what's being lost with AI because it's just pulling from our, it's pulling from our shit to create more shit to give back to you. It's legal. It's literally plagiarizing everything (laughs) that that is doing. There's no other way around it. People say, oh, well, it's not, it's not, it's this, it's that, this is the future. It's like, that's great. It's plagiarizing and it may be the future, but it's plagiarizing. It's literally stealing everything right. we've already done to recreate something. Yeah. And I mean, that's weird. But anyway, nothing. But I mean, like you said, you know, 
you know, the the art styles do kind of end up looking the same in some instances. And I've heard that argument, too, from designers and artists that are like, well, you know, this is going to take over my job or something like this. But like if someone comes to you, like say a client comes to you and they want you to do some changes or do some design based off AI artwork, you can always just say no. Like you can say, you know what? I'm not, I don't work with that. I'm not going to work with that. Yeah. But I mean, ladies and gentlemen, binary, non-binary folk, thank you for coming to our AI chat. (laughs) How do you approach a new design project? Carefully. It's interesting because there's so many ways to approach a new design project and it's so broad, but I'll try to paraphrase and not be as wordy as actually giving you this explanation as to how I'm not going to be wordy. You get a brief usually of what someone wants to do as far as the design goes. Hopefully the brief's more entailed rather than just saying, just do something. And I'll tell you, I'll let you know when I like it. Sorry, I don't work that way. And if I am going to work that way, you're going to be paying a lot of money for it because I'm not going to do it for free. So the way I approach the project is to see exactly what the person wants, see what they have, if they have anything. And then what I like to do, and this is old school, is I go pencil and paper or pen and paper and I just sketch. I sketch and I fill up sheets and sheets of paper with just sketches and ideas and thoughts. And maybe this will work, maybe that won't work. And to me, it's the best tool you have. It's quick and it doesn't break. It doesn't break down. You can't lose files unless you throw it away. And then I, and once I get to a spot where I think it works, I then start going digital. If it's supposed to be digital and I bring it into the computer, this is the way I describe it. Whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm making, I do high quality comps, meaning that I will do something in a manner to where it feels real and looks real just to give the person who's on the other end a better idea of what's to come. Like, hey, here are the concepts and here's what I'm thinking. And I explain each concept and I, I put it into a, a different bucket or theme and I explain why it works in this theme and I explain why it works for their business and I explain how it work in the space, whatever space they're going into, just so they know that I'm not just doing something because it looks pretty. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's important is oftentimes people do stuff because it looks pretty rather than serve as being functional. Yeah, Being pretty, that shouldn't even be in the vocabulary. That shouldn't even be a thought. Like, of course you're going to do something that looks nice. Like, that's a given. <laughs> but does it fit within what you're trying to achieve, which is in that certain niche, in that certain area? What are you trying to achieve by making this product? Are you doing what's best for the client? And so I try to approach initially with, with gathering information with them as much as I can, seeing where it needs to go, wherever space they're into, sketch, go digital, put together a thoughtful presentation as far as why I was doing things a certain way and why it will benefit them, and then get feedback and move forward and see how that works. And honestly, it's this is a interesting conversation, but I've been doing this for, oh my God, a long time. <laughs> 90, 98, so 20, holy shit, 25 years. Is that right? Is my math right? 25 years? No. <laughs> Sounds about right. Oh my God. That is, wow. Okay, cool. The point was, I'm sorry. You, you blew your own mind there. I got a lot of my sensibility. I've been doing this so long. The point is, is I've had maybe six or seven clients in that time who were just disappointed with what I did. And so to me, it makes me feel like, all right, I'm doing something right. Because if I wasn't, the list would be a lot longer. So. 
I'm also realizing too, this is something very important for people who are starting out doing any type of art or any type of media that is subjective. Anything that is visually captures your eye to be judged is subjective. So art, video games, design, packaging, clothing, whatever is visually perceived is subjective. And that is fact. So when you're designing something, you have to remember that if someone doesn't like your work, it's subjective. doesn't mean they don't like you. It doesn't mean that your work's bad. It's just subjective and it doesn't fit their taste or doesn't fit their style. It's not on you to make the client like your work. It's on you to deliver what's best for your client. Mm. That's your job as an artist, as a designer, as a game developer. You deliver what's best. And if they like it, great. If they don't, it's okay. It's not personal. So that's how you have to view things moving forward. And I just, man, I've been doing this for 25 years. So I'm so old. But I just realized this a couple of years ago because my wife told me, damn, she's so smart. She said, you know what, Kirk? It's not that they don't like you. It's just they didn't like your design. Like, mind blown. Like, damn, you're so right. For everybody who's starting out or who is in the crux of it every day grinding, just remember that it's not you. Hopefully your work doesn't suck. It's subjective. That's what they're judging your work, not you. So here we go. That's a great piece of advice. I think for even, you know, folks that have been in the game for a long time, that's a good piece of advice to know. Yeah. I mean, and it took my wife, she's so wise to tell me that because here's the thing. We're all emotional creatures and as designers and as artists, we're all a bit egotistical. I'll admit it. I am. And when you hear a fresh perspective from somebody and you remove the emotion and you remove the subjectivity and you look at it objectively, you're able to say, oh, well, you're right. Because everything that you do in the visual world is subjective. So there you go. There you go. Yeah. So how do you kind of balance the business side of everything, like the marketing, the finances, the contracts? How do you balance that with the the creative aspects of your work? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. The business side of things work itself out. I do what I'm supposed to do to get paid. I do what I want to do to stay fresh. Hmm. So I will do the jobs I have to do. And depending on what it is, if it's a fun job like branding or packaging, that's where I can explore. Sometimes you have to do things like marketing pieces or flyers or graphics for a social media post or design a booth or design, you know, a show talker for whatever. And so the various little things that go into branding and marketing or whatever that need to be done. And it's just more of a production artist or more just a getting it done aspect rather than actually creating things. So for me, what I do if I'm stuck or want to stay fresh or creative is I draw. I haven't been drawing enough. So I try to draw. I try to make up, I do writing and, and I try to make up stories and make up characters. And I also like to to play video games. Now this sounds silly, but video games unlock a lot of creativity for me. And the biggest reason as to why is because my brain literally has to shut off because it has to focus on the game I'm playing. Like everything else is shut out. And so my mind quiets and when my mind's able to quiet, it actually has a better time thinking. So oftentimes I'll play a game for, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes and I'll stop playing. Like, oh damn, I just had an idea. 
because it makes me refocus. And so whatever the idea is, I try to go with it. And that's the other thing too, is if you have an idea and like I have several because of the ADHD, if you have an idea, just start it, just do it, just get it out of your head, whatever it is. If you want to paint something, if you want to draw something, if you want to write something, if you want to come up with an idea for a game, if you want to, to think of an idea for a cocktail you like or a coffee drink or even, you know, a puzzle that you want to do, just do it. I mean, take some time and just do stuff for you. Always mind your deadlines, but also make sure that you do stuff to stimulate you. I always tell people, I'm a very creative person, but my medium of earning for my creativity has always been design. And growing up, I, I loved reading comic books. This is in my bio, but growing up, I, I loved reading comic books. I loved all things comics. I would draw, I would pretend I was a comic book hero. I would make up stories. I would watch Star Wars. I would watch everything. And, and the one thing I did with comics was I copied how they looked. I would copy the lettering. I would make up my own lettering. I would make up my own stories. And all of that is all design. Like, if you look at a comic book, people are like, oh, it's just a comic book. The amount of vocabulary used in those, as well as the, the form and the pictures and the settings and everything else, it, it really enhances readers because you get engaged with it. And also, it gives you lessons in, in layout and it gives you lessons in hierarchy and form and structure and the way things should look on a page with composition. So all of that led into what I'm doing. And I think that people need to realize that you can find creativity in anything, but I think you need to love what you're doing in order to do so. So you can be creative in any way you want. If you have an idea or whatever, just get it done. And I know I'm talking too much. So I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> so tell me more about these video games. What are you playing? <laughs> See, now we got on a, we got on a real topic. First of all, let me preface this by saying I'm the older. So we are the generation that grew up playing games. We are the generation that had the, the uh, you know, in television and the Commodore 64 mm-hmm. and Apple and playing Oregon Trail and Atari 2600 and the first Sega and the Sega Genesis and, and you know, Nintendo 8-bit and then went to the, you know, Super Nintendo. And then so all this stuff we grew up with. So I love games. I've always loved video games. And I just got a PlayStation 5. About about six or seven months ago, and I just never played it. I thought, why am I not playing it? So I broke out Miles Morales, and I played that. Okay. I played through it, and then I'm like, all right, let me try God of War. Started it, and I'm like, I, I have to dedicate time to this, and I don't have time. So the first God of War, greatest hits, of course, because it's been out forever. Just I played through that, finished it, and I got Ragnarok. played through that, finished it. Then I replayed Tomb Raider. It was which Tomb Raider was it? Finished it. Started playing Ratchet and Clank. I'm like, I can't, I can't fuck with this. It's, it's too, uh, <laughs> it's too happy for me. I need to kill people. That's uh, that's not bad to say. Like, it's a video game, kill people. right? He, oh, this is some crazy shit. So you heard about Jaguar going off, right? She's an artist, R and B artist. I can't think of her last name, but she's quote unquote exposing. Yeah, yeah, right. So she's talking about things and and just really, I don't know if it's spilling the tea or borderline snitching. I'm not sure which one it is because sometimes it's like she's spilling the tea on bad things and sometimes she's just snitching. Mm-hmm. Hey, girl, you speak your mind, do what you want to do, but you know people are, are going to come at you one way or another. Yeah. But the one thing she said that really bothered me that went back to like 
white racist senators was talking about, I don't blame any of people doing the one thing I don't like is GTA 6 or GTA. Mm-hmm. GTA is a terrible game. I mean, you sit there and you sit there and you kill people. You do this stuff and do that stuff. And, and then you, what's going to make you change and do it, do it in real life. What's going to make you think you can't do it in real life. It's like, I can play Uncharted. I can play Max Payne 3, Tomb Raider, uh, Last of Us. I can play violent video games and never kill anybody or have it come across my mind because I have the ability to separate reality from fantasy. So you can't say that someone playing a video game infracts on their life. Like, I'm not going to be Spider-Man. I'm not going to be Batman. Like, it's a ridiculous notion. Rather than talking about the environment in which they grow up and the violence that they're exposed to outside of their house and the systemic and cyclical poverty that they're exposed to on a day-by-day basis, especially in poor areas and ghetto, I'm not going to say ghetto, that's terrible, poor areas of black and brown people, you have to think about that before you say it's a, it's the video game's fault. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a silly notion. So, but anyway, back to video games. I really have to dedicate like an hour at a time because I just get swapped in. And once I'm in a game, if I'm into it, I got to finish it. It's like, I know I can't, I can't get into a game because I know I have to finish it. Like, it's going to be a big chunk of my time. It's going to be a lot of stuff that I do. So that's the other problem. But it really does help me shut off. And it's a nice stress reliever. Mm. Just thinking about the pattern of the boss that you're fighting. Okay, he's going to do this, which means I got to dodge, which means I got to throw this, which means it's like, so there's always a pattern. And there's always something you can figure out in a video game. That's what I like about it. Do you play games? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a yeah. Switch. I have a PS5. Okay. It's funny, I, I'm not a big PlayStation person, but then I looked back and I was like, I've actually owned every PlayStation console, <laughs> even the handhelds, even though I, I never really played them a lot. Like I had a, I had a PlayStation 1 when I was in like middle school, high school, Had a, yeah. I played the hell out of my PS2. I had the big chunky PS3 that, that could do backwards compatibility. Yes. My PS4 is in my closet. I just got a PS5 last year. And I have a Switch. I have like one of the first, like when they came out like five years ago or whatever, I've got a Switch. Oh yeah, I'm a big gamer. Well, let me take that back. I feel like I'm more of a game collector slash enthusiast because I don't play as much as I used to. I've started recently, I guess it was sort of, I guess you could call it a resolution this year. I was like, I'm going to start playing more games this year because I have, like my Switch is literally right next to my desk and I, I got one of those like little... It's called a Shadow Cat, a Genki Shadow Cat, where it can mm. you can basically connect your Switch or your, you know, Xbox or PlayStation, whatever, to any HDMI input. And so I have HDMI on my main computer, which is a gaming PC. So I have my Switch hooked up to my PC. So now I can just like have it in another window because I have an ultra wide screen monitor. I just have it in another window and I'll play a little Animal Crossing or play some I, I play a lot of <laughs> I play a lot of Picross, which I started playing when I was in high school, I think. Picross is like this Japanese, it's sort of like a crossword puzzle, but you mm-hmm. you, you make out a picture instead of doing words, although I do really like crossword puzzles too. And there's this company called Jupiter that just like keeps cranking out Picross games. Like every six months, there's like a new Picross game. So like I had all the ones on the Nintendo 3DS Picross 
E, E2, E3, E4, E5, E6, E7. And now the ones on Switch are Picross S for Switch. So now I'm currently playing my way through Picross S8. And it's very much one of those things where like, yeah, I can just kind of turn my brain off because I've played it so much that I already know, like my hands and brain already know what the controls are to do the thing. So I don't have to think about it. And it's such good, like, I I actually block out three hours on my calendar at the end of a Friday just to play that. Not all three hours, but like I'll play it through some of those three hours just to sort of like defrag my brain from the week. Like, okay, this is good, like calm down time. Turn the phone off. Yeah. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Listening to games we play with Maurice and Kirk. Thanks for tuning in. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, man. You mentioned the PS and there's a game that I just honestly, man, it still blows my mind even going back and playing it is Metal Gear Solid mm-hmm. on the PS. And Hedio Kojima is was at Konami for a long time, and he owned, and he's the guy that invented, he's the, basically the dude that solidified and invented action-adventure games. Like, without him, there wouldn't be a Resident Evil. I mean, without him, there wouldn't be any of those games, because he invented the idea of sneaking around and figuring about puzzles and collectively trying to collect goods and see it's it's just brilliant and you go back and play it and it's it still holds up it still holds up the graphics are not great at all especially on a nice tv but man the story play and the cut scenes like cut scenes became a thing then it's just oh but anyway all right i digress let's finish our interview shall we (laughs) i want to go more into your your origin story you've kind of already touched on like really being into like comics and video games. Like, tell me more about uh, about growing up. I grew up in a small town called Modesto, California. And I know you grew up, we touched about this before we started the podcast, you grew up in Selma. Mm-hmm. And just because people get a black president or you live in a certain area doesn't necessarily mean that racism goes away. And growing up in an ag-heavy city like Modesto was... It was very different, for lack of a better term. (laughs) And I played soccer, I played sports, I had three older brothers. But the one thing I really loved to do was read comics. I mean, I mentioned before, I loved reading comics. And I never thought there was an avenue for it. I wanted to be a doctor or a firefighter. And it wasn't until I met my ex-wife that I knew about graphic design. And this was, this was in, damn... This was in 98. Like, I basically started doing design when I first learned about it just because I was so intrigued by it. Her father, my father outlaw, was a was the head of the creative services department, Modesto, called E&J Gallo Winery. And he was the head there and literally known in very, very wide spaces, especially in the beverage and wine and spirit space. Because of the work he had done, he had been doing it since the '60s, and he invented the ENJ brandy bottle. He invented the New Amsterdam vodka bottle, the shapes. So if you look wow. at those, those are very iconic. So he would sit there, and he took me under his wing, basically, and told me about design. So from there, I was intrigued, and I started taking classes at the local JC, and I went to classes at San Jose State. And the one thing that was very bothersome to me was the inaccessibility to take more classes there because at the time before they made it into a BFA 
Bachelor of Fine Arts. It was just a BA. You had to qualify for their design program. And I, quote unquote, wasn't good enough to qualify for their program. And I remember sitting there thinking, looking at designs and critiquing designs. And like I found what I was good at. I just understood design. I understood it. It's, it's like it spoke to me. It was like I was the duck. You know, I was the duck who had been sitting at the office desk that finally found found out that there was water outside and he could fly. That's how I felt, right? <laughs> and from there, I was just able to have mentor. A mentor is the best in the world at doing something and run ideas by him. I still talk to him. Like, I just talked to him three or four days ago. Like, I mean, he's my father outlaw, but I still talk to him to get advice and stuff like that. So... I look back at that experience and look back at my life and I just think of all all of the obstacles that were there that I have no idea how I would have found this job had I not been where I was. I mean, I'm in Modesto. Modesto is known for Scott Peterson, George Lucas, Gallo Wine, right? Like <laughs> those are our three major claims to fame. And it's just a small town. It's not small town. It's a fairly decent sized town in the Central Valley where it's not heavily populated by by black people. There are tons of Latinos, predominantly Mexican, that work on the area there. But I had no idea what graphic design was or that it was even a possibility. And I still wouldn't have had an idea had I not met my ex, I would not be doing what I'm doing. It's all the things that had to happen in order for me to be able to do this is just I don't know, man. It's luck. There's no other way to put it. And I'm I'm not religious. I can be, I guess, spiritual, but I don't believe in like going to church and everything else. I do believe in karma. And I think that my karma was to be a designer. It just was just happened. So I got lucky, man, and I started doing design work from there. Worked freelance for a while when I had my kid in two thousand. And then see here in two thousand nine I started working in the office like I was telling you about and then from there on out, just did design work, and here I am. And I think the experiences I had and the wide range of dabbling in different designs made me a better designer, but also having that foundation of of the fantastical world of comic books and video games also helped. Like it just led to this this path for me. Well, it sounds like it was also kind of just this constant like sense of inspiration too for you. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, I can't doubt that. I mean, my profile pic on on my LinkedIn is me holding a Batman cup, taking a sip. Like my signature, my professional signature, my actual signature is the bat symbol. Like it's on my passport. It's on my license. It's like <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's my legit signature. It's just kind of part of me. I have on my sloppy ass desk. I have you know a couple of Grogu figurines, a Boba Fett, Star Wars lamp. I have Batman behind me. It's just, it's, I'm just surrounded by it. So it's always influencing me and always has. And I'm thankful I found a career that kind of lets me create. Now, you were already a working designer when you were studying at, at San Jose State. Like, how did you balance school and work? Oh, man. I, honestly, I don't know. I had a, a kid at home, young kid, and I was working part time as well as well as going to school and having a job freelancing. It was, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not saying that to like, to because I'm doing a, 
a brag or I'm self-glossing. I'm saying it because I don't know. It's, it's all a blur. Basically, from 2000 until 2010 is all a blur for me. Mm. <laughs> During that time, I I had gotten married in 99 and then had our first kid in 2000. And then a set of twins in 2003. My father passed away that year. And then my brother passed away. Or Sorry, he didn't pass away. He was murdered in jail by cops in 2009. And then 2010, I moved from Modesto. I honestly, dude, I that whole decade's kind of a blur. Yeah. Um, so y- you know how you do things in the moment, mm-hmm. and you look back and you say, "How did I do that?" That's <laughs> the moment for me. Yeah. Like I, because my ex was laid up in bed when my twins were born, and so I was taking care of the newborn twins, a three-year-old or soon-to-be three-year-old kid and then my ex so you know that the the resiliency of the human spirit is truly amazing when it's put to the test you can do a lot when you set your mind to do something you really can do a lot and i had to do it there was no choice so that's what i remember i'm sorry i can't answer no no that's real i mean i i think about like I have a, I wouldn't say it's necessarily like a blank spot, but it's definitely a blur. Like I remember vignettes of things from like 2000 to maybe like 2006 is mm-hmm. is sort of like, that's sort of my like blurry period. Cause I was in college and I like, I remember certain things. Like I remember where I interned at, I remember getting my first apartment I remember graduating. I remember graduating because they, they had the graduation outside in the middle of a thunderstorm. And the person sitting next to me would not share their umbrella with me. So, like, I kept trying to, like, scooch under the umbrella and they kept moving it back. So, you know how umbrellas are curved. So, the water just wow came down and I had this, like, sad, droopy mortarboard when I went to go get my degree. <laughs> I, I remember like vignettes of things because I know during that time I was working a bunch of jobs that I hated. I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Like sometimes you're so in it that you don't really remember the like. Yeah. You don't remember it. Yeah. You were there, but you don't like have full recall of that time. Like I even have like a pop culture like blind spot from like 2000 to 2006 or so. People will mention movies and TV. And I'm like, I kind of know what that is like like people will mention stuff about like spongebob and harry potter i'm like i'm familiar with it in like the cultural zeitgeist but i never i don't really recall being into that because i was in my 20s and just trying to survive like i don't really remember it you know most artists or some artists have a blue period we had a blurry period yeah (laughs) 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 but honestly man this is kind of sad but true it more than likely it's just severe trauma that we've we suffered at that time and neither one of us know how to deal with it or even com- comprehend <laughs> yeah and, and i say like I, it was like a blind spot because i had and I'll, I'll ask you about you know kind of what your time was like at shackley but i know i was working at i don't know if i've even mentioned this on the podcast before i, I was working at auto trader as a i think i was like a, a dealer concierge or something i was trying to like work my way up to like something mm-hmm. higher paying or whatever. And right. at the time I was also a blogger. 
I had like a, oh. you know, I had a, I, I won't mention what my blog name was, but I had like a blog and I was talking about <laughs> other stuff and I never used anyone's name. Everyone was, you know, had a pseudonym or whatever, but they found out about it at work and they had like called me into the office and they had printed out like reams of my blog, which honestly oh. was a little flattered uh, because oh, I, I, yeah, because I fancy her. Cause like I fancied myself a writer, like I wrote all through like high school and college and stuff, yeah. and so I was like, oh, I was like, oh, for me, you know, like I was kind of like <laughs> a bit sort of like taken, and they're like pointing out stuff that they've highlighted, and and then I remembered, I was like, how how did they find out about this? Because I never did it from work, and then I remembered that there was someone at work that I told about it, and that could have been the only way that they found out about it. Snitch. Snitch, yeah. Snitch um, end up in ditches, as Paul Bettany said. And and so they tried to fire me, and I quit before they fired me. And then I remember I was I was like going home that evening, and I was on the phone with my mom, and she was just like, well, "What are you gonna do with your life? You, you got this degree, and you don't want to do this, and blah 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 blah." And I applied to like I applied to this job in the back of our alt weekly here called Creative Loafing. I applied to a, a electronic media specialist gig. That was sort of the start of my professional design career, actually, was doing work for the state of Georgia. But, like, that job was so bad. Oh, my God. At the time, I thought I was living large. I was 25, I think, 24, 25, had my own office, had cards. I mean, you wouldn't get this shit nowadays because of the way that the industry is. But, like, I had my own office. I had cards, like, with a door that I could close. And I thought, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. But then there was also all this at the time, this sort of like pervading narrative that I kept hearing from people like, well, you just have a bachelor's degree. Well, you know, the bachelor's degree is a new high school diploma. If you really want to get far, you have to get a master's degree. And I'm just like, oh, oh. And so I was trying to get my master's degree at that time. And my boss was just the worst. I'm not going to slander her on this podcast, but she was just a very bad boss to the point where we had to get mediation from the state to come in. Oh my God. And uh, it concluded with me just leaving. I just had to leave. I was like, I'm not going to stay here with her any longer. Like, it's just not going to work out. Wow. So that that whole period is kind of a bit of a blur because I was like, look, I'm just trying to survive. And also at that time, I had just started my first big design project, which was the Black Weblog Awards. I was working full time. I was doing that. And I was just trying to like survive because like i didn't go to design school so i didn't have any sort of design knowledge of anything all i had was like photoshop blends that i made because i downloaded a cracked version from limewire and it didn't put a virus on my computer and i was <laughs> copying tutorials from books that i not that i didn't buy from books that i just read in barnes and noble and i either took notes or i took pictures with my little olympus point and shoot camera and took him back to my apartment and was like, okay, so how do I do this? So like, I had to teach myself how to do all this stuff. I was just trying to get by, man. I was, <laughs> I was yes. just trying to make it. <laughs> so I get that blurry period a hundred percent. Yeah, that's life. I mean, it's one of those things too, because being older and you talking about just reading something, reading up on something and figuring it out. It's like, if I really wanted to, I could do that now. But I don't want to. Like I don't. I don't want to learn. I don't want to. I don't want to learn TikTok. And I. I mean, I don't want to get on there and start doing stuff. It's not hard. It's just I don't want to do it. Yeah. And I don't think that the younger generation, they think that you know we're old and we don't know what we're doing. It's like 
motherfucker, we're the ones that invented this shit. Like, yeah. we were the ones who were going on Napster and LimeWire and everything else to try to figure out how to get stuff. Like, that was us. We were the ones who saw things go from landlines to mobile phones. We saw it go from VCRs to downloadable HDX files. We're the ones that saw that shit. We're the ones that saw the transition. We were the ones that evolved with it. If the apocalypse happened, like the zombie apocalypse happened, have you seen The Last of Us yet? I haven't seen it yet. The first episode? Have you played the game by chance? I haven't played the game, so that's why I haven't seen it yet, because I don't know if I need to like play the game to watch the show. No, you you don't, but it's just shitty because you can see stuff coming, uh-huh. and it's just like... But it's it's so well done. It's so well done. But what I'm thinking is, if we were to go back into the zombie apocalypse, right, and everything had to go back before there was all this technology and digital and everything else, many of us wouldn't survive. Like, many of us wouldn't wouldn't know how to take notes or to <laughs> to do basic things because we're so dependent upon electricity and and like you know power and the internet. Because I'm thinking we are in Santa Cruz and the, and the electricity went out and it's just pitch black. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking if it stayed this way, could any of us really figure out how to survive? Like how long would it be before we started going into like full on the walking dead Keegan mode? Like mm-hmm. how would that take? And so I, I think that we would innately have some better survival skills than the previous generation. But I just don't feel like going through that mess. And so hearing you go in and say, I read this and read up on it and figured it out. I'm like, see, that's that's baller status right there. And I, I think that's that's something I'm I'm happy I don't have to do, even though I probably should in order to keep up with things. But <laughs> what are we talking about again? We're talking about you. We're talking about you. Okay, I, okay. I, I wanted to ask about your your podcasting. I mean, we're we're on a podcast, but you yeah. are a pretty prolific podcaster yourself. Like what made you get into it? Wow. First of all, I don't listen to podcasts. Like, I don't even listen to my podcast except when I'm editing them. It's very odd, I know, but I find them to be a bit pretentious at times. I feel like, well, it's always so formulated. So I, I feel that way about podcasting, but, but what made, made me get into it was, and I'm so glad you, you said when we started this, it's just going to be a conversation because that's what got me into this, was listening to, to talk radio and being... 13 or 14 years old, I was exposed to talk radio and I was exposed to shock jocks, quote unquote shock jocks. I didn't listen to a lot of NPR or things like that. I listened to, you know, the Don and Mike show. They were out of WJFK and in, in Washington, DC. And I listened, they were syndicated and I listened to Howard Stern. I listened to a show called Mark and Brian. I listened to this show called the rise guys out of Sacramento at KHDK. And then I listened to uh, Carmichael Dave out of KHDK. And then Jim Rome. So I listened to a lot of talk shows. And what I, what I learned is that most of the times when they were doing things and talking, it was just a stream of consciousness. It was just a thought. It was just like four guys hanging out, but they made it interesting. And they knew how to pivot and they knew how to keep the topics going. They knew how to, to really get through things. And there's a lot of stuff that they would, would mention and say and do. And just the feel of the show was like you were there hanging out with them. And I really liked that about talking. I'm like, well, I want to bring that to a podcast because I try listening to podcasts and it's so boring. And I want to just bring it to a podcast. Like, I want two guys who understand design. And my, my good friend, Andy Kurtz, K-U-R-T-T-S, Andy is, that's my dude. He's so fucking cool, man. Like, 
he's cool. He always knows what to say. And he's a damn good designer. And I just, I love the guy. And it's like, I couldn't do this design show with anyone else really. And I met him on a whim when I was doing something with Startup CPG, which is a foundation that helps up and coming CPG brands. And we were both on a, a Pictionary thing. And that's how I met him. We just did this online Pictionary during, during a holiday party and like, hey, let's do some stuff. So we started doing stuff on Clubhouse. And then we started doing stuff finally on Buzzsprout, I think it's called, mm-hmm. where we just do podcasts. And so our idea was, let's just do a packaging podcast. So we go on to talk about all the specifics of packaging, like what's important to put on the front of the pack? What's important to put on the back of the pack? Do you know about your n- nutritional labels? Do you know about all the contents that go in? And then we started having people on. And we would have people who actually worked in the industry, who owned their own brands, who um, were other designers. And then we realized that it went past that. And we just started talking about design, strictly about design. And that's how I got into it with, with Andy. And we have people on every week. And it's just grown into like this fun little sit down and chat with people. And I love it. I love that aspect of it. And it reminds me of my, the old talk radio I used to listen to, but now I'm actually doing. And I only have to do it for an hour instead of like three or four. I don't know how those people do that. It's so <laughs> impressive. Like three or four hours on the air, just talking and talking. I, I hate hearing myself talk and which is why I probably don't listen to my own podcast, but, but that's one thing. And then I did another one called Jerks with my friend, uh, Jerry Smith. And I had to stop that one just because I was doing two a week. Mm-hmm. And when we did jerks, it was mainly, uh, it was an honest approach to things, but I felt it was, it took a lot out of me emotionally and to do the edits because we were talking about real shit. And then I have to do the edits and things like that. And it was just like a lot. And I said, I have to like cut one out. And I thought, which one's going to be better beneficial to me as far as like my business goes. And, and as far as like really promoting that, it had to be a Kirk and Kurtz. But Jeremy and I would get on and we'd talk about shows we watch. We'd talk about laws that were made. We'd talk about people that were doing stupid shit. And like, it would be like Donald Trump or Kanye West or whatever was the topic that week we would talk about. And it was good, but I just, it just took so much from me. And I wanted to get back into my own podcast because what I was doing was just having anybody on and talking to them about what they liked and talking about stuff that I liked. But then I'm realizing it's just so much work and I just am not willing to put in that work. Whereas like, if I'm doing it with Andy, it's twofold. I get to chat with Andy and we get to catch up on work and we get to catch up on life. And then the other thing is, is that it holds me accountable that someone else is dependent upon me to actually do my shit. Yeah. So that's the thing. And it's not as emotionally draining as, as jerks was because it was frustrating, uplifting, happy, and sad. Like it was just this bag of bittersweet mixed emotion the entire time. Mm -hmm. So it was very taxing. And I love journey, man. Dude's cool. And I still keep in touch with them. Really nice guy. Really great guy. But it was just a little too much for me. Yeah. What made you get into podcasting? Uh, I've done this for a long ass time. The OG. <laughs> what made me get into podcasting? I started back in 2005. Uh, again, back with this blog that I had mentioned before. I started, I bought like a $10 mic from CVS, like the CVS up the street from me. It was like this little GE mic that you just stick into one of the ports on the back of your yeah. computer and you just start talking. Back then, at least when I started, podcasting wasn't a big 
it wasn't a big thing. I actually don't even remember if it was really called podcasting back then because podcasting is like a portmanteau of like iPod and broadcast. And I know the iPod came out in 03, but I don't think podcast was like a big word in general back then. No. There, I know audio blogging was because the precursor to Twitter was this website called Odeo that I used to use to just record like, you know, snippets of stuff and would send it to friends because a lot of my friends lived either in New York or they lived in California. They didn't live in Atlanta. So we would just do audio blogs and stuff back and forth. And on the site, I would just do like a, I called it a blog cast, but I would just kind of record an episode and maybe I'd have a guest on using Skype. I would have a guest on and <laughs> we would talk about, <laughs> and we would talk about like, you know, just whatever's in the news and, and whatnot. And I was learning how to edit. I was doing editing myself with like audacity or whatever. And then I sort of fell into this uh, group of other people in Atlanta that were doing podcasting and they, I met this couple, Amber and uh, and Rusty, who were doing, they basically created this organization called the Georgia Podcast Network. And it was mostly like Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, like the tri-state area. And we would have like semi-regular meetups. There was a website. Uh, I think they even put on a few pod camp conferences, like using the camp style of conferences, which are, which they call like an unconference back then because the attendees are the ones that set the the itinerary and like got into the the podcast community then you know met some people you know just kind of other folks that were doing shows and then i kind of fell out of favor from doing it for a while because i mean this was around the time also youtube started to become big so people were really mm-hmm. kind of starting to get into doing video like blogging itself right. was dying out a bit more people were going towards video audio was still something that largely in terms of distribution was more in the arena of like big media entities. So like a New York Times or an NPR or something would like do a radio show and then they release it later that day as an MP3 or something, you know, because I would listen to that stuff at work or whatever. And so that's how I first got into it. And there just wasn't, at least around the time with the Georgia Podcast Network, outside of them, there wasn't really like a big community for it. I, I call that like the first wave of podcasting. And then the second wave really came in like the mid 2010s with uh, with Serial. Like Serial came and then they had that famous ad with the woman mispronouncing MailChimp. And that seemed to just take off like wildfire in terms of people just being like, you can listen to audio on this device that I hold in my hand that has a headphone jack that I've been listening to music. To? Like, yes, you can. You can do that. It wasn't a big, big push. Right. Sometimes the most obvious answers aren't obvious. Yeah. But like people started to see, I think, the possibility in it, because even though, you know, Sarah Koenig is a journalist and, you know, she was doing this independently at first, like people saw like, oh, wait, I can make a show about anything. And like the way that the podcasting industry has honestly like expanded and grown in the past 10 years is phenomenal just in terms of the availability and the the suaveness of hardware the availability of software i mean if you have a spotify account you can record a podcast like there's it's so easy now and so the the learning curve has gotten much much flatter for people to try to get into it which i think for better or for worse has been something for the industry i don't want to say it's been good or bad but uh now because so many people can do it everyone can do it and so there's just so many different shows out there but 
I wanted, at least with Revision Path, you know, I wanted to kind of establish the lane fairly early because I had been listening to other design podcasts and there were no black people. And I would ask them, why aren't you talking to any black designers? I know black designers. And sometimes I would get a response, which would usually be negative. But most of the times they would never even respond. And so I started Revision Path, not as a podcast at first. It was just going to be an online magazine because uh, right. a, a friend of mine, this woman named Dee Dee Sutton, had a really successful online magazine that she created called Clutch. Clutch Online or Clutch Mag Online, I think is what she called it. But she had a really super successful online magazine. And I was like, I want to do something like that, with, but around design and Revision Path. Because by this point in time, in 2013, when I started the show, I had quit my job at AT&T five years ago, started my studio, and then like I had been in my studio now and it was successful for five years. So I was like, oh, I could, I have the time and the space to like actually do this. And so that's how Revision Path was born. And I recorded my first podcast uh, in June of that year. Like we started in February in terms of like interviews, but the first recorded podcast was in June of that year. And then in 2014 is when we started to do it on a fairly regular weekly basis in terms of audio interviews. And uh, it just kind of took off from there. That's dope. That's so cool to hear because I'm in the process now on our show of interviewing more black designers because I told Andy, he's a North Carolinian, white dude from North Carolina. And he's just, he's super fucking cool, man. And he is definitely an ally. He understands things. He um, is very encouraging stuff. And I keep telling him about this person on like, yeah, and he's feeding me people that I'd never even met before seeing because he's more in that space for knowing people than I am Mm -hmm. as far as designers. And so it's just, it's good to see. And so we're, I'm starting to get more, more people of color, all colors on our show, but mainly black people, because there was a survey and I've mentioned this before on, on other places where I've talked. I think it's called designcenses.org or designcenses.com. And they interviewed 9,450. So for argument's sake, let's just say 10,000 people. And only 3% of the people interviewed design-wise were black mm-hmm. because that was the, the space. And then it was like 13% Asian other, but it was 71% white male were designers. 71%. And you look at agencies and you look at the the about us and you go through the headshots and it's like, wow, there there it is right there. This is exactly it. Okay, and you go to the next next agency. Well, there you go. This is exactly it. And that's how it is. It's understandable, but there's so much talent being missed out on just even basically from seeing things from a different perspective, right? Being black and understanding different ideas and stuff. Like here was like, for instance, I think also too companies don't even really try to be creative anymore. I'm serious. I'm serious. Like, think about think about the last cool Apple ad you've seen. And so I thought Apple's always like they had this weird ass thing where they were showing they did this weird foreshortening of people holding up their phones, mm-hmm. and then there were small silhouettes in the back. And it, it's like now bigger. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that's terrible. Here's my idea for the perfect, the perfect Apple ad. Apple iPhone. iPhone, if you're listening or the service goes back to you, I want, I want my fucking royalties on the shit. <laughs> what, what you do 
all you do is you show a phone with a screen off and you just show the phone with the screen off like on a desk. And I want the desk to be a real desk, not like this perfect pristine thing. I want to see like a takeout menu. I mean, real life shit, like everything kind of just like normal. And then I want to hear two people in the background, like like you hear a show in the background. It's like, no, nah, that's now I'm telling you, that's the dude. This is how it starts. That's the dude from the last night or the night quest. Like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. It's an argument going on. And finally you hear, hey, Siri. Yes. Who was this person then? And then it just comes up. It says iPhone. And then phone scratched out. It says, I want to win this bet. (laughs) Right. So every scenario is like that. And then you do another one. And if someone is in a car in the holder, the phone's in the car in the holder, right? And, And you see like traffic in the background. It's kind of blurry. It's nighttime. And you hear two people talking about, I'm telling you, the taqueria is right here. And then it's like iPhone and scratch out. It says, I want to find that restaurant, right? Like focus on what it does rather than what it is. Mm-hmm. That was Steve Jobs' big thing. Focus on the product, uh, the actual benefits of the product rather than the product itself. Like, so why wouldn't they do that? Like, why wouldn't they find a way to push it? Because everybody knows what iPhone is, right? It's not a phone. <laughs> It's a mini do wall in your pocket. Yeah. Right. And so why not focus on that? And I hardly, and this is no joke. I maybe talk on my phone two times a month. Maybe actually talk on my phone two times a month because people know I don't like talking on the phone and they'll text me. So it's like, you can have anything now. Like I want to win this bet. I want to find a restaurant. I want to see what time that movie starts. I it's like it does everything for you. So why not mention that and make it fun? People know what it does. People know why they're buying an iPhone. You don't have to show the camera on the back and how it's like, who cares? <laughs> we all know it has a camera. Yeah. I know it takes good pictures. Like that's the given. Just like saying that, that when you design something, it's going to look good. What is the solution you're trying to find? What are you trying to do with that, that solution? And so for me, being a creative person, I'm always thinking of shit like this, like how to solve for a real thing. Like what would I want to see on a commercial? Anytime I see a commercial and I see an iPhone commercial, it's Lily, right? She's talking about AT&T and how you can get a free iPhone. Like I like her. I love that character because she's just kind of silly and it's fun. It's it's like a nice counter to the Verizon. Can you hear me now, guy? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But it doesn't speak about the phone itself, right? It speaks about AT&T services. So have something that does something to do some phone. But anyway, I think they're missing that because they narrow their search to what looks good on paper rather than what performs well in real life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, people can present really well on paper, but not be that that great in real life. Mm-hmm. Apple also snaps up a lot of really good designers and art directors and... I don't know what they're doing with them. I mean, I would imagine they work on many of the other parts of the Apple ecosystem. Like, for example, I've never been able to interview anyone that worked at Apple or that, I'm sorry, that currently works at Apple because they don't, they don't let their employees do interviews. So like it's, I've interviewed ex-Apple people and they've told me, you know, what they can about it, but I don't know what goes on inside that large tourist building in Cupertino, but, um... (laughs) Some ironclad NDA action, right? There. What, whatever, whatever is going on, I don't know if the creativity necessarily is uh, 
is making its way out to people. Because I think even with the last iPhone, with the iPhone 14, a lot of people have been like, it's not that much of an improvement over the 13. And granted, that's probably supply issues and, and things of that nature, too, just in terms of the camera and stuff. But yeah, I don't know if Apple is the the innovator like it used to be in that aspect. No, no and also, too, I, I'm still rocking my old iPhone 7 Plus. Oh, wow. I'm still rocking that, and I love it. Honestly, I wish they would go back to the 4 size, the size of the iPhone 4. Mm-hmm. It was just a little bit bigger than a business card. That's what I don't want. I'm tired of these phones getting so big. Like, I don't want to carry around an iPad. I, I want to carry around a phone. Like, the old flip phones... I think Samsung, they had the flip phone, right? Yeah, the the Galaxy Flip or Galaxy Fold or something like that. That's pretty cool. I see some problems with the screens possibly being messed up because of all the opening and closing. But yeah, I like the idea. How fun was it? Remember how fun it was to end a call just by closing it, Mm -hmm. closing it shut? Like, end of the call. Now you have to push a button violently in order to make sure people (laughs) know you hung up. A violent tap. A long yes, press. You want, give, you want to give them those three beeps. You know, when they hang up, beep, beep, beep. Like, yeah. okay, that's the end of the call. Like, it used to just be slam, and that was it. Call <laughs> over. So that's the one thing that that phone brings back, which would also be a fun aspect, right, for a marketing standpoint. With this phone, you can now end calls properly. If this shows them, it's like, bye, slamming the phone. Yeah. I think, yeah. But anyway, tangent. <laughs> I'm curious, like with the with the podcast, you know, as we we talked about a little earlier, like, has that helped you become a better designer now that you're able to really sort of like speak with other designers in Congress on a regular basis about stuff? Has that helped you out? Oh, I don't talk to anybody in Congress uh, or in the Senate at all. Oh, no, no, no. Not necessarily a better designer, but a better informed designer. Mm. I'm able to see perspectives in a different way from people who've done certain things, but I, I don't think it's helped me be a better designer. It just helped me understand where people are coming from and, and just more exposure, more exposure to anything definitely increases knowledge of something in regards to your field. But I don't know if it necessarily makes you better equipped design wise, although it might, I don't know. I haven't really seen a big uptick in my design skills. Maybe I should just keep interviewing people in the hope that it will, rub off via uh, telekinesis because osmosis you need water so people say oh you're gonna get that through osmosis you always need a water a water source so you can't get it through osmosis but through telekinesis possibly my mother is a biologist she tells me that same thing <laughs> that exact same thing people can't get stuff through osmosis i get it i get it i get it so you need to have areas of high concentration to low concentration or to live your proper in order to have us. Okay, mom, sorry. <laughs> I get what you mean about being a better informed designer. Like even as I've done this show and I've talked to like people all over the world, like it just, it lets me know what our differences are, what our similarities are. Like, you know, I feel like a lot of designers have the same issues regardless of where they are, whether it's their work or finding work or finding purpose and things like that. But then you see how different it is in parts of Africa versus in the UK versus here in the States, even like from the rural areas of the States to, you know, big cities and things like that. It has, I think made me, I I get what you mean about it, making you better informed. Just hearing more people's perspectives helps you to see 
a lot farther than what you just might in your own kind of narrow field of vision. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what you see. You said it so much better. (laughs) What kind of advice would you have for any, like people are listening to this conversation, they're hearing you, they're hearing your story. What advice would you give to people that want to like follow in your footsteps? They want to have the career that you have. First of all, I think it's good to understand, like I said before, not everybody is going to like your work, right? Like everybody's not going to like your work. And so you can't take it personally. I also think that it's good to find a designer whose style you like in different fields and find multiple influences to help your thought process. I also think it's good to find a mentor if you can, someone you trust that will be honest with you. And by honest, I don't mean absolutely mean, but I do think you should find someone who's not going to bullshit you. And last, and this is the most important thing that I've found, is just be yourself. Just be yourself. Be unapologetically you. Now, granted, there are, and you and I both know this from working with with people in the corporate space, you have to figure out a way to tone back a little bit at times because, especially if you're a person of color, black, mm-hmm. brown, you have to figure out a way to tone back sometimes because then you're seen as being aggressive, you're seen as being loud, you're seen as being abrupt, you're seen as being a disruption. But you can set boundaries by your actions, not answering emails being cordial with people, being firm, and then setting those boundaries. But try your hardest to be yourself because people who will fuck with you will understand you 100%. It's not going to be, oh, I've never seen this side of you before. Like that should never come out of anybody's mouth who you're talking to. And, And I say this all the time that whoever I'm talking to, I talk to the same way. Like I talk to, to six-year-olds this way. I'm talking to you. Like I'll cuss around them and I'll say, cause that's me. I'm not going to like blatantly go out of my way to cuss, but if something comes up, I will cuss. And it's just because that's who I am. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be edgy, right? I'm just trying, I'm just being me. And if that happens, it happens. And at times I realize I've said something and it's like, oh, it doesn't work the best around my two-year-old nephew <laughs> because he's a parrot and repeats verbatim with incredible syntax vernacular and diction exactly what you said so i have to watch that but be unapologetically you is the biggest takeaway i would say but know when to and this this is a horrible thing to say so it's like good advice and bad advice because you shouldn't have to shrink for anybody but there's times in order to get ahead you kind of have to make sure you do which is terrible to say but and if people don't like you and they don't fuck with you, then you don't want to work with them. Have there been times in your in your career where that's that's like come back to bite in some way? <laughs> yeah, it has. And you know, we we didn't mention we didn't mention Shackley earlier where I worked, mm-hmm. but I basically had a target on my back after speaking back to the VP at some point. Mm. And here's a fun story and. Other people who've heard me on other stuff will probably say, I've heard this a thousand times. When I was working there, there were one, two, three, four, five, like six black people that worked there, maybe seven. 
And one of the women that worked in a different department that I worked with, she was walking by the VP's desk. And the VP, she sat in the middle of the office. And it's an open office, which for those of you who are listening, open office plants, <laughs> they're terrible for everybody. But anyway, she was walking through and there's this open office and she walks by and she says, and I'm going to call her Sarah for the conversation. Just Sarah, Sarah, um, how are you coming along on, on that action brochure? The action brochure was a brochure that I was working on that was due for a global conference, which Shackley holds every year. And last time they did it was in Vegas, I think, but I haven't thought about that shit for four years. But anyway, so where are we on that conference? Aren't that that action brochure for the global conference. And Sarah looks at her and says, oh, um, well, you know, I have it back with creative and they're making changes to it. Mind you, I am literally 20, 25 feet from the VP mm -hmm. in open office. And she says, oh, well, well, what can I do to help you? How can I help you? The VP says to Sarah. Sarah looks at her confused and says, ah, I'm not sure exactly how you can help. I mean, it's with creative right now. Being incredibly calm as black women have to be in the workplace, or they are assumed to be combative. So that's another thing. And then she says, you know what? You know what? Forget it. The VP. Forget it. You go do your thing. And I'm sitting here do my thing. Okay. Don't, don't, I, 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 forever. So I hear this and I'm, I'm thinking, this bitch. So I get up and I walk over to my project manager who sits even closer to the VP. I walk up to her and I say, in this exact tone and this exact voice. Was that about the fucking action brochure? <laughs> and she, she looks at me and, I'm, and I, the project manager and I, she's dope. I love her. She's at, she's at a different company now and whatever, but she's so, she's so cool. Like she was basically like a mom to all of us and we weren't, she wasn't that much older, but she just had that like caring and very organized nature about her. And she goes, yeah. And I go, tell them, if they would stop changing shit, then I'd be able to get it done. And I said it loud enough so the VP would hear it. And so I started walking back to my desk and the VP does this. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Kirk. What did you say? And I turn to her and I say, if you would stop changing shit, then I could get it done. So this is what she does. Puts her hands up like, like the, the entire like hands up, shoulders back, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're all on the same team. And I said to her, uh-huh, yeah, right. And I went back to my desk. After that moment, it was like a bullseye was on me. Everybody was like, Kirk's leaving early to go to go do something, which I had established because I was leaving early on certain days to get my kids from school and spend time with them because I was going through a fucked up divorce and custody battle. So I needed every moment with my kids. Mm -hmm. So, and then it was like, Kirk isn't doing his work or getting work done or asking for more work. And I was like, motherfuckers. So I got called into the office after that one day and or to into HR. And, <laughs> and I go in there and the first thing I ask is, Am I fired? And they're like, No. I said, Well, okay, then let's talk. Because here's the thing. If you're gonna fire me, just fire me. I don't want a lecture. I don't need to hear anything. Just fire me. So they sit down and then all these things come up. You You've been leaving early. And I said, well, I told you I was going to leave early because it was my supervisor and the HR lady. I said, I told you I was going to leave early. He said, well, you know, what do you do when you get your work done? I said, well, predominantly, I probably either surf the internet or I catch up on other work that I'm doing. 
And they go, you don't ask for more work? I say, no, why should I? Why should I ask for more work? See, Kirk did quiet quitting before quiet quitting was cool. And <laughs> I, said, I said, why should I ask for more work? And they go, well, you know, and I said, no, I said, he said, well, you know, people have come up to you and you've had your headphones on and, you know, you put boxes up on your desk. I said, yeah, because I need to get work done and I'm right next to the bathroom and people know that I'm friendly and they want to talk to me. and I don't have time to talk sometimes. So I put the headphones in and get stuff done. People have also said that you're unapproachable. And we all know what that's code for. Mm-hmm. You're black and scary. People or, or, or that you're just black. <laughs> Facts, right? <laughs> and so I, I said, I said, well, I don't understand that. And they, I look at my supervisor and, and they go, yeah, because you might be hurting people's feelings. I said, well, okay, what? I, I look at my supervisor and I say, hey, have I ever given you any flack for a job? No. Have I ever done a bad job? No. Have you ever been displeased with anything that I've done? No. I said, I don't see what the problem is, though. I said, my job is to do the best I can in the time allotted with the information that I have. That is my job. So, yeah, you know, you've heard people's feelings. I said, I don't give a fuck about people's feelings. <laughs> like, that's not my job. And I knew I wasn't hurting anybody's feelings because I would have people come back to me repeatedly, specifically asking for me to do work for them. I think it's a combination of jealousy and other people in my department who I worked with who were who are fucking busters. And I think it's also the fact that oh, I didn't march to their drum. I didn't do everything that they said. And so they're like, oh, well, how can you do this? And I was like, no. Nah. And they said, okay. And then the HR lady asked, Kirk, do you like working here? I'm thinking, bitch, what the fuck are you talking about? How can you ask me that? Mm-hmm. You already know the answer. You're asking me a rhetorical question. You've already <laughs> know the fucking answer. Like, dude, you know the answer. So... I sit there and I look at her dead in the eyes and I say, I really like who I work with. And that was it. I didn't say anything else. It's like, you really think I'm going to give you, I'm going to dig the hole with the shovel you gave me so you can knock me in it. <laughs> so you can shoot me and put me in it like a, like a, a damn gangster movie. No, <laughs> I'm not digging the hole. I'm going to say what I have to say. It's going to be honest. I did like the people I work with there. Here's the thing, man. This is the biggest thing other people can remember too. Working with people is about relationships. And when you have a good relationship with someone, your work's going to be better than it would be if you have a bad relationship with someone. That's just, that's everyday life. That's a job. That's a marriage. That's a basketball team. That's baseball team. That's sports, whatever. It's, it's everywhere. So I have people and I can, Think of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people who I used to work with at Shackley that have left Shackley and have come to me for work to help them do things. Now, if I was a bad, that bad of an employee or that bad of a person, they wouldn't want to work with me. They wouldn't seek me out afterwards. It's like, that's the thing that I measure from being not only a, a, a good designer, but a decent person to work with. And that's important to me. So just realize that people at work aren't your friends, but there are people who can become friends when you get to a certain point. And there's several people who I work with from there that I really enjoy working with and love. And and so there were people that I love there, but I couldn't say that I actually liked working there. I would have half of my face go numb going into work 
I would have headaches. I would have terrible anxiety. I would sit in my car at times. Like I would start around 8.30 and I would get to work at about 8.20 and sit there until like 8.50 or 9, just not wanting to go into the office. Like that's how bad it was. Mm. And the day my wife said to me, you know what, you should you should look into seeing if you can get time off for stress relief. I said, okay, cool, bet. So I talked to the Kaiser Permanente psychiatry department, which is non-existent. It's terrible. And I talked to the dude and then over the phone and either in person or over the phone, or I don't remember, but he said, you know, what, I'm gonna, they normally give out two. He said, I'm going to give you three weeks. And I thought, as soon as he said, I'm giving you three weeks from work, like this weight had been lifted. I mean, right now talking about it, like my face is kind of going numb. That's how stressful and traumatic it was being at that fucking work environment. And when the three weeks was almost up, I started having the same fucking symptoms coming up. Same shit would happen at home, knowing I had to go back in. Mm-hmm. And my wife said to me, just quit. And I said, really? She's like, yeah. In the moment she said, yeah, it's like the weight had been lifted like this. I felt like Atlas finally had to stop holding up the world, right? It's like it's someone else's job. It ain't my job. Like there was that much stress and pressure on me. And when people are talking about, oh, you, you quit because you're mentally not there or whatever, it's like, you fucking right I did because it was killing me. It was literally killing me to be in that environment. And I don't think people understand the amount of shit that uh, other people can't escape from. Like there's people who can't do what I do. I was lucky. I was fortunate to have a supportive partner and to have someone who cared enough about my mental health as well as my physical health to say, you need to quit that fucking job. And my former boss who was working at a different company was just telling me like, Oh, I need to stick it out. I said, I said, no, you need to quit. Since you started working there, this, 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 and this, this have happened to you. All these physical things have happened to you based upon your job. Stress is killing you. So finally she quit and she said she feels so much better already. She's getting back into a rhythm. She's starting to, to exercise, she's sleeping better. And it's like, yes. And I, I don't think people realize the importance of A, working in a hostile work environment, but B, working in a hostile environment might being a marginalized person, i.e. not a cis white male. And it's it's tough. It's tough. And it's tougher for other people in, in certain situations. So yeah, that's the the reason why I left. That's my experience there. Overall, I learned a lot while being there and I met some nice people, but I can honestly say I would not work there again. That sounds like, it sounds a lot like my time working at AT AT&T. It was just, oh my God, not great. Not great. AT&T at at the, at least at the time when I was about to quit, I thought it had, I like thought I had Crohn's disease or something. Like every time I thought about going in or had to go in, I would automatically get sick i would automatically have stomach issues i thought i had ibs or something and then once i quit it all just cleared up it just like poof vanished it was gone so yeah working in those stressful environments can definitely do a toll on you mentally physically yeah i I know what that's like yeah and i'm sorry you had to go through that it's not a good experience yeah it's difficult see you empathize and you sympathize and it's hard for people to understand it if they haven't gone through it. How can you let that happen? Actually, a dude that used to work there at Shackley went somewhere else. 
and all the shit was happening to him from an abusive narcissistic boss. And he said, oh, I have to quit. And he said, you know, I remember criticizing you for quitting Shackley, but he said, now I understand. I apologize because I had no idea before. Like, yeah, man, it's, it's real. It's real. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? As much as I don't like Kanye West, one of these great lyrics from one of his songs, he said, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't know the exact words because it's Kanye. He, he said, where do you want to be when you're 25? She turned around, looked at me, and she said, alive. <laughs> I was like, damn. That's kind of how I feel. Like, I would like to say I'd, I want to be retired in Hawaii, sipping on pina coladas and Mai Tais and watching the turtles. But reality, I just want to be around. I mean, I want to be somewhat healthy, doing stuff with my wife, chilling, working, just enjoying life. As far as career goals, I really would have liked to finish a script I'm working on, finish a video game idea, finish a graphic novel. I just want to finish something because I have all these ideas and they all kind of go around and sync up. Oh, here's something too. Hey, hey, hey. See, the ADHD brings working. <laughs> I'm working on a project right now that has a certain character I meet up. And so this is what I was thinking. I hadn't seen it done before. I think it would be kind of fun. I was going to start a character. And the first thing I was going to do was write a little brief book intro about him. And the second thing I wanted to do was uh, write a or design a video game that picks up where the book left off. And that's the only media it's, it's available in. Like, it's not going to be in a book. It's not going to be online. It's just going to be, like, the only the game, right? And then after the game, I want to make uh, an animated movie or show where that picks off and pick up from there. So it crosses three different media, but it continues one story. And I hadn't seen that before. And I was thinking maybe because it's not as big of a deal or it's too hard to do, but just different things, too. And I want the video game to transfer to be able to transfer like when you're playing it from a 2d scroller to a 3d sandbox like i want i want them to interact that way like where you can just pause it change settings and go to a 2d scroller right like for, think of rayman versus batman batman arkham knights or any game like that the uh, god of war or tomb raider mm -hmm. so you go from that to like a 2d scroller like kung fu or uh, Rayman or whatever. So that was my idea, or Kung Fu Master. That was my idea behind that. But I want to do something along those lines for my personal, not personal, but just for my creative zeal. But mainly just in five years, I want to be able to chill and probably have some better relationships with my sons, uh, my twins. We go deep when we talk. This is always me. So I'd probably like to have a better relationship with them too in five years, but. We'll see what happens. So just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work and everything? Where can they find that online? Uh, you know what? Just to wrap it up, thank you so much for asking me that question, Maurice. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm putting on my podcast voice. I want to tell you about Xylitrol. Xylitrol is, no, people can find my agency work at mindthefont.com. So it's like M-I-N-D. T-H-E-F-O-N-T dot com. And then I have something else I do. Just kind of my own weird personal thing. It's called, if I sold a brand, but it's V as in victory, S-L-A brand dot com. 
and on there, it's just kind of my own personal stuff. I do have some, some swag that I sell on there, like hoodies and a t-shirt. I also have a thing called thought spot on there where I write down random stuff that I've been thinking or what I'm going through at the time. And I date it. So you can read that. It kind of like, it's just me unfiltered. And I think that's it. And also if you look up Kirk Faisola, you're going to find me, which is everything. It's, it's pretty weird. You can find podcasts I've done, old pictures of me from newspapers when I had dreads. Yeah. Kirk Vaisolo, That's me. Just type it in. You'll find me. And also to anybody listening to this, please seriously reach out to me. And if you want any questions or ideas or thoughts or anything, reach out to me because we don't communicate enough, especially black designers, other black designers, other black creatives. We should be communicating with each other. Maurice and I were talking about this before and I told him to, to call me anytime he wants to vent or talk or chat or whatever, because we need to lean on each other in order to make each other strong. So reach out to me anytime, y'all. And Maurice, thank you so much for having me on. Now, that's it for me. Yeah, no, this was a, a really great conversation. Kirk Faisola, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Really, I think if there's anything that's come across in this conversation, it is your just like unfiltered, complete authenticity about yourself and your work and your attitude to the work and everything. I hope that that's something that, you know, as people certainly look at what they want to accomplish this year, they can sort of follow in your stead about being yourself and knowing that by doing that and by being themselves that they can succeed as well. So thank you so much again for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. Big, big thanks to Kirk Faisola. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kirk and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is sponsored by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With best-in-class customer service, free who is privacy, and more, Hover is there to help you bring your online dreams to life. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, let us know. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Revision Path, or you could follow us on Spotify or Amazon Music. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, or leave us a message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Music